0: One of the wonderful things about Vipassana practice is you always have something to do when you have to wait. So, can you hear me in the back? Is that, it's okay? All right. So, we've come to the end of this first day of practice. And although we haven't yet had a chance to talk with you, Um, My guess is, our guess is, that it's probably been a day of some considerable struggle for a number of you. One of the things I think that's always fairly obvious in a first day of retreat is how tired we all are. And of course you come here where it's quiet and you sit down and you close your eyes and what happens? Your body says, oh good. (laughs) It's nap time at last. You know, she's finally getting it or he's finally getting it, but we need to rest. So I hope that some of you have indeed rested today if you've needed it. And please know that that tiredness does pass in a day or two. And probably some of you have struggled a lot with physical pain, body pains of various sorts and perhaps pains in the heart and the mind. But almost certainly you didn't get the first day of retreat that you ordered up. Um, doesn't happen so often. So really, you are to be congratulated. You've made it through. And, you know, it's very rare to get to practice like this. The images in the text, which I've, I've always loved, uh, that your chances of even being human are about as good as if there were in all of the oceans of the world floating around one life preserver, one. And also in all of those great oceans of the world, swimming around, there's one blind sea turtle, and your chances of getting this human birth are about as good as that sea turtle coming up right in the middle of that life preserver. Not great. Not great. And that's rare, but it's even rarer, it's said, to hear the Dharma, and yet rarer to get to practice it. And if you look around in our world, you see that that's true, actually. There are not so very many people who have this opportunity. And I think it's partly because it's, you know, it's not so easy to find. And it's hard. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Come to the retreat, nice place, sit down, close your eyes, pay attention to your breath. I mean, how hard can it get? And it gets very, very hard to come back over and over and over again. So, so tonight it seemed actually like a pretty good idea to talk some about suffering and difficulty. And I particularly want to talk about how it's an important ingredient of your spiritual journey. It's not, it's not just a problem. And in fact, it's not only an important ingredient, it's an essential ingredient. And it's not only essential, it's actually really the foundation of that place of refuge. So this may leave you feeling a little skeptical. How could she possibly say that? You know, most of us can hardly wait to get rid of whatever unhappiness we have. You know, the pain that you're carrying in your body. I thought I've been, several times I've thought I've been over this cold that I've had. And every time I think I'm better, it comes back. You know, what is this? It's not fair. And I want it to be over. We all want our pain to be over. And maybe you came here to the retreat out of a particularly painful period in your own life, really hoping that somehow you would get away from it at the retreat. We know that there's an enormous amount of spiritual practice that centers around questions of pain and suffering, the problem of suffering, sometimes it's called. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's always a really interesting question. How can we not be overwhelmed by our own suffering? And not only our own suffering, but the enormous suffering of the world around us. And so these are the kinds of questions that often propel us into our spiritual journey. So here's a poem that I want to use both at the beginning and the end of today's talk. Um, It's called The Way It Is. It's by William Stafford. He says, There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, You can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So, you know, if we had the great blessing to sit around, it would take quite a while with a group this size, and tell our various spiritual stories. It's quite likely that many of them would begin with some story of suffering, some place where we were lost or confused. And that's not only true for us individually. We find that in the great myths about spiritual quests, that's where the quest begins. There's suffering, there's confusion, there's hurt, there's betrayal. There's a question what? What is going on here? And why this agony? And why me? Why me? We don't understand the nature of our experience. So, for many of us, some of this began, some of the suffering begins really early in your lives. You know, childhood, babyhood even. You know, years of abuse of various forms. Some people have had Mm -hmm. terrible experience in schools of being bullied. There's been illness or there's been injury. All the many, many forms of suffering that deeply shape our minds and our hearts when we are young beings. And they can shape the personality, can shape that with which we face the, the world. And for some of us, maybe childhood wasn't so difficult, but then later in life, you know, we've come across all the difficult world of relationship, which often has its, always has its bumpy places, and work, or we live in, we've lived in areas that are affected by wars or environmental disasters. And it's interesting, you know, the Buddha, and the legends of the Buddha, anyway, who knows what We were talking about this at dinner tonight. You know, who knows what really happened in the life of the Buddha? It's too far away, and there's no written history of that time. But what we're told, the myth is, that he had a very protected existence. He was lucky, maybe. And so he was very deliberately kept from any exposure to any kind of suffering, to exposure to illness, exposure to death. It was even said in some of the stories, you know, if the if, as the leaves started to fall from the trees, they'd be whisked away so that he didn't even ever see a tree with a dead leaf on it. and And then they'd take him someplace else where it was springtime anyway. So, you know, he just didn't know. And it was said that he was destined to be a great ruler himself, Um, like his father, and his father knew that if he were exposed at all to suffering, he might become a great spiritual leader. And being a daddy, like many daddies and mommies are, he wanted his child to be what he was, you know, to be a great ruler. He understood that. But the young Gotama, that was his name before he was called the Buddha, got a bit itchy, as young men often do, And he decided that he was going to go off on his own and see what he could see for himself. This is one of my favorites. Maybe it's because I have grandsons. I don't know. But it's one of my favorite parts of the story where he really decides, okay, you know, what's out there in the world? What are they, what are they hiding from me? Is probably what he was thinking. So he got his charioteer to take him into town and he looked around and there he met what are known as the heavenly messengers. <clears throat> so he saw someone who was very, very sick. And any of you have been in India, especially out in the countryside, you know that when someone's really sick, it can be pretty difficult to see. It can be difficult anyway, anywhere. And then he saw someone who was really, really old. And then he saw a corpse. And he was astounded he had never seen anything like this you can imagine if you you play with it a little in your own imagination if you had never seen anything like this how what is this and and then he said to his friend could this happen to me and his buddy said yeah it happens to everyone and you know it's interesting i was thinking while i was working on the talk this afternoon of all those times I stand in front of the mirror and I go, What? <laughs> what? Who's, you know, whose body is this? I actually distinctly remember once in yoga class years ago, it was quite some time, I was doing downward facing dog and I looked back at my thighs. You know, back in the days when I still was wearing shorts to yoga class. I would never do that now. And it was like, Whose thighs are those? You know, I don't have thighs like that. I have young thighs. Well, you know, no, it's happening to me. So we all have that experience of seeing these heavenly messengers. And we know the answer is, yes, it does happen to you, and it's happening to me. It can, it will. That is me in the mirror, unfortunately. (laughs) And then the fourth heavenly messenger walked by, and the fourth heavenly messenger was a monk, who was just going along. And he seemed pretty contented and pretty serene. And he, he too walked by the sick person and the old person and the corpse. And he seemed all right in the face of all this difficulty. And that got the Buddha interested. What did he know? And how could he be that calm, that balanced in the face of all of this? And that's what set him on his path. At that point, he made the decision to leave the home that he'd grown up in. He found teachers, and he began to seek the answers for his questions. What is going on here? And he studied for a long time, for many years, and he went through his own processes, and he found those answers. And he didn't find them from esoteric teachings, And he didn't find them through ascetic practices. And he didn't find them from altered states of consciousness. What he found them from was from deep attention to his own present moment experience. So after the night of his awakening, he spent quite some time pondering, you know, what what happened? He even... it said, question, should he even teach it? You know, should he go out and teach this? Maybe maybe nobody could hear it. You know, there's no one out there who's going to be able to understand what he understood. And and it's said that um, one of the devas in the heaven realms, you know, they saw that he was um, thinking about not teaching and they sent someone down and, said, you know, there, there are a few people out there, you know, those few people at Land of Medicine Buddha in 2014 <laughs> who have just a little bit of dust in their eyes. And so if you teach, there will be some people who will wake up. I'm so grateful. <laughs> you know, I'm so grateful. So he decided to teach. And as he began to teach, he offered some very simple and very powerful teachings. And they're the same teachings that have reverberated down these ensuing 2,600 years. He taught about the origin and the ending of suffering. He taught what are known as the Four Noble Truths. So... These are teachings which resonate in the hearts of all Buddhist students and practitioners everywhere. I remember once at a gathering that I was at with the Dalai Lama, and and he said, that's what is the earmark of a Buddhist. That's the only thing that marks you as a Buddhist. If you study the Four Noble Truths, that makes you a Buddhist. So that was nice to hear from the Dalai Lama. And it's true, it's interesting to see that this particular teaching is pretty much in all branches of Buddhist practice. It's so deeply nourishing, and it's so simple. It's, it's like, I always think of it as being like fresh bread, you know, good whole wheat bread right out of the oven, and it's nourishing in that way. It's also true, you know, some time ago I, I took a period of solo retreat, and I was reading in, in quite a number of Buddhist suttas, not so much as a study, but just because I wanted to get a kind of an overview of what it was that the Buddha was teaching. And I realized after a while that this is what he taught over and over and over and over again. And sometimes in this form and sometimes in that form and sometimes with this story and sometimes with that story. But it was all this basic teaching about the nature of suffering and the ending of suffering so there are four noble truths and with each of them there are three things that are important to see so you've got a total of 12 things that are important here so it's important to see that there is indeed suffering in all of its many forms and it's important to see that we need to understand it there's something really to look at here And then it's important to know that you have understood it. And it's important to see that there's a cause, that the big problem here, the biggest problem, is the desire for things to be other than what they are. That place of attachment where we want things to be a particular way. And that that's what really leads to the worst kinds of suffering. It takes ordinary suffering and makes it exponential. And we see that we have to let go of that attachment. We understand that. And then when it's done, we know that we've done it. You actually know, oh, look, look, I've let go. Maybe just a little bit, but I've let go a little bit. And then we actually notice that we aren't suffering. There is sometimes an end to suffering. Really, really important to see that. And But we don't always see it, do we? Sometimes things change, and we're just so busy, we just keep zipping along so fast we don't see it. So it's really important to realize it, to make that real, that that's the ending of suffering. And then we have to know that that has happened. And then finally... We see that there's a way to live our lives that leads to more and more letting go and to less and less attachment, and that's known as the Eightfold Path: wise understanding, wise intention, wise, um, life, wise pff, action and speech and livelihood, and wise effort and concentration and mindfulness. Mindfulness and concentration, reverse sort order. Of. So. We see that when we practice these different aspects of the Eightfold Path, which we'll probably hear more about later, and we, we can develop that path and we take it as a practice and then gradually we begin to see, oh look, it is actually bearing some fruit. It has developed. So we see one of these truths. We see what needs to be done in order to understand it and to know it. And then we see the result of the practice. So I can remember some years ago, there was a spell of time when Ajahn Sumedho from the Amravati Buddhist monastery in England, he was the abbot there for a long, long time, a student of Ajahn Chahs. And he would come and teach retreats here. And he would every now and then he would bellow out, you know, these are the four noble truths. And then he would say, this is the practice of a lifetime. And, you know... It was, it is the practice of a lifetime. You don't need anything else. I could stop here and you would have enough to practice for the rest of your lives, actually, if you really worked at it. And um, it's so important to note that nowhere does the Buddha say you can't begin the path until your suffering is over. He doesn't say that. You don't have to clean up your mess before you can begin. He begins by describing the human condition. There is suffering. There is dukkha. It's not pejorative. It's just a fact. It is. So this word dukkha is very, very interesting. And it's very tricky because it's a Pali word. And we don't have English words that quite match up with it. So it's the the word that we often translate as suffering. But it also has to do with being dissatisfactory and being out of round and being never quite right. Nothing ever gets to be permanently perfect. In fact, it very rarely gets to be perfect at all. So there's some different flavors of it. There's what sometimes gets called dukkha dukkha. I always like this the dukkha dukkha, the suffering suffering. So this is really pointing at the stuff of life that is just inherently painful, your bad back, your knees that are messed up, the fact that you have some difficult condition in your body that you can't get out of, even the things of relationships, partners, children, parents, you know, all of the things that are sort of woven into the human condition you can't avoid them nobody has a life that doesn't have some of these things even the Buddha had a bad back and he died of food poisoning you know how how ordinary can can you get um, and so that's the the dukkha dukkha and the place where it really gets to be a problem is where we don't want it we don't want it. It's interesting because, you know, when I think about it, and um, I know a number of people recently, I know Bob will talk about it more later this weekend, have been aware of Nancy Deal, Nancy yeah. Gill. I always want to call her Nancy Gill. I knew her Nancy Gill. Oh. Nancy Gill's passing. And one of the really sweet things about this wonderful old woman, um, as she left, was she left with such grace. And she didn't fight it. And what a teaching, what a gift to all of us that to have people around who somehow are able to take the ordinary pain of life and not fight it quite so much more, find ways to work with it, work around it, and and weave it into their lives because it's the fighting it that creates the problem, right? So there's also what's known as anicca dukkha, which has to do with the utter impermanence of everything. Nothing lasts. I was just last week at the Grand Canyon. What an astounding place. You know, millions and millions of years of layers and layers with things, you know, the, the great unconformity where a whole few million years are just gone missing. Nobody knows where they are. What happened? You know, it's really interesting. But it came and it went. There were oceans and little shelled beings and fish, and then there weren't, and then there were deserts, and then there were mountains, and it's astounding. And, you know, we think of this, you go around, you look at trees and rocks, looks pretty permanent, but it's not. It's not permanent. It's all changing all the time. And your difficulties are impermanent. They're not impermanent enough often, but they are impermanent. And the really good stuff is also impermanent. It doesn't last. But we want it to last, don't we? You know, we want to get it all adjusted, just right, my relationship, my life, my work. Get it all in balance, and then it'll be you know, we'll live happily ever after. I think that's really the myth that we all grew up with, is that we were going to live happily ever after and it would be perfect, and it's not. And then there's what's known as sankara dukkha, which is the way everything, nothing's really very solid anyway. It's always barely taking form, and any um, physicist with his or her salt is going to tell you we're all going in and out of being all the time, all our little particles Anyway, it's not solid. We may, it might look solid, you know, this looks solid enough, but it's not. <laughs> but, and we crave solidity, just like we crave permanence. All of these things are not avoidable. The pain isn't avoidable, the impermanence isn't avoidable, the lack of solidity isn't avoidable, and it's the attachment to wanting it to be different that is the real problem. But then the Buddha cuz he was really interested in this thing, you know, in, interested in suffering. What? How does it work? So then he began to look at how it goes around in cycles. Have you noticed? You know, we all do the same things over and over again. We go around and around, we repeat the same variety of pain and difficulty over and over and over again. In our lives. The same relationship issues. Have you ever done that? You got rid of him or her, right? You were done with that kind of relationship. And you found the perfect right person. And you started a new relationship. And then six months into it you go, Oh. Huh. She's just like the one I just left. Or he is. Or this job that I thought was going to be the perfect new job. And it's. Actually, the boss is kind of like the last boss. And we realize that we're repeating the same cycle or it's the same addictive issues over and over again. It might even be the same lifetime over and over again. That's one way of viewing it. And so we get caught over and over again. We get reactive to our situation and then, boom, we are going around the wheel. So this is how he says it. So this is called The Chain of Dependent Origination, for those of you who like to collect Buddhist stuff. And what he says is this. He says, Ignorance conditions formations in the mind which condition a certain kind of consciousness, which condition... What we call name and form. So, what you're seeing. This is a whole perceptual process, which conditions the sixfold sense base, which conditions contact. So he's saying, okay, this ignorance is conditioning the perceptual process, really. And so contact is made, and the contact conditions feeling. That's the pleasantness and unpleasantness of something, which conditions creates the conditions for craving to arise, which create the conditions for clinging and attachment to arise, which creates a certain kind of being, which creates another birth, and that creates then aging and death, and also sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair. So here's how to hold this teaching. It's complicated. Don't try to remember it all. Mm -hmm. It really means that at any given time when we have an experience, we don't see clearly... Because our experience is conditioned by our past experience, by filters, if you could imagine, from your past. So just imagine, through that door over there, someone walks in who looks just like your mother, or just like your ex, or just like the difficult boss that you once had. It's going to be really hard to see that person clearly for who they are, right? Because they're gonna stir up so much of your past. If you're very conscious, you might be able to do it, but it's really, really hard to do it. Sometimes this filter is useful, sometimes it gives you a little head up, heads up, but most often it's not. So we see things through the lenses of our old stories. And through that lens, you're looking out, then some kind of contact happens, and then we react, because we go, oh, this is yummy. I maybe, it's, maybe this person looks like someone you really adored. So you're thinking, wow, she or he is going to be really great. And so it's a very pleasant experience. Or maybe it's, oh, no, no it's unpleasant. Or maybe it's just kind of neutral, and you don't pay any attention to them, because they're just not very interesting. And so then, out of that, there's a certain kind of reaction. We start wanting something. You know, I want it, or I don't want it. We push it away, or I just kind of don't see it. And again, not so conscious. And then we get attached to a particular outcome. We want things to turn out a certain way. And then we're off on the cycle again. We're going around one more time. <laughs> so we repeat the difficult relationship or the unhappy work situation. And you're stuck, again, in anxiety and worry, pain, despair. Every one of us has done this. There's no one in this room who's escaped being caught in this cycle. So, you know, I've looked around the room a few times. Some of us have been practicing for a long time together. You know, I've seen some of you on retreats for actually many years now, different places, or at Inside Santa Cruz. And I know some of you have been practicing with Bob or with Jason or with some of the other people. So the question is, have you ended your suffering yet? (laughs) Uh, Have you? Last February, I sat for two weeks at Spirit Rock as part of the February retreat. And, you know, it was brutally apparent that my suffering isn't done yet, for sure. And it was really interesting. You know, I I try to sit a period of retreat every year. And I guess it's always interesting to see which old patterns reemerge again, you know. And so there were some things that came up that were very familiar. I know them well, and I've struggled with them for a long time. And then there was some stuff that came up that really surprised me. Some old injuries and pain that I thought I was done with. But I guess not, because there it was again. And my sadness and hurt and unhappiness was came around one more time for a little bit more purification. Really important. We haven't said it yet in here. But, you know, Vipassana is an, a wisdom practice, an insight practice. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is it is a purification practice. So this means it's not a problem when this stuff comes around because it needs to come around again. It's part of getting purified and cleaning it up. <laughs> and retreat definitely seems to be a place where we do this. Old things come to visit and sometimes and sometimes it's new. Sometimes you're sitting there and you all of a sudden some memory or some something comes up and it's like, oh my goodness, I had completely forgotten it and when it happened, I ignored it. I remember one teacher of mine talking about having an experience of really difficult pain in his body and he realized that there had been an injury that he had had to ignore when he was a very young man. And then years and years later, as he sat and went deep, deep, deep into his body and into his memories, the pain that he ignored Was still there. Isn't that interesting Mm -hmm. to have it come around again like that? So it's really, you know, where are we not yet healed? And what needs to wake up? And what needs to unfold? You know, what's to be surprised by it? You know, like that poem last night, carried by the surprise of your own unfolding. So it's been noticed that the Buddha's teaching was based on the medical model of his time and ours in which we notice the suffering and so then you try to find the causes and then we try to find healing and again to set notice that nowhere does it say to ignore it nowhere you have to really take it in so there's a lovely story that i like to tell and it's about Nazruddin. you know nasuddin was the great sufi saint and and in this story, um, Najuddin has misplaced the keys for his car. So he's hunting around, you know, where are my keys, where are my keys? And his neighbor finds him out in front of his house and, and he's hunting around, you know, out there in the street, sort of under the street light, where are my keys, where are my keys? And his neighbor says, well, where did you last have your keys? And Najuddin said, oh, I was back in the garden, back in the bushes back there where I last had the keys. And, and so his neighbor said, well, why are you looking out here on the street? And Nazarene said, because there's more light out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's not where we find the key, is it? And so it's really when you begin to look in the dark. When do you begin to look in the dark? Because when we begin to look in the dark, that's a place of profound turning in our lives the place of beginning to come to terms with your suffering is a very sacred place. And it is the first step on the path to liberation. So if you're going to follow that thread that William Stafford talks about, you have to become students of your own suffering. The simplest of instructions for this practice is the instruction, this is the way it is. Whatever the it is, you know, this is the way the hurting me is, this is the way sadness is, this is the way hunger is, this is the way dying is, this is the way grieving is, whatever it is, that's the instruction, this is the way it is. We meet the pain or the difficulty and we give it our attention. We meet that which is uncomfortable. We meet what we want. We meet what we want, you know, when we have to do things that we don't want to do. And we try to give it our attention. We so often move away, don't we? We don't want to do that. And so you turn on the TV or you go to the computer and bring up that new game that you're kind of interested in, or you get your phone out and get the latest at What's that? Candy something game that people are playing? You know, you get it and you're there, or you're not, and you're ignoring, you get out the glass of wine, or, or <clears throat> the chocolate-covered peanut butter balls. <laughs> <bottles. laughs> Whoa. You know. And that takes you away for just a minute and you're not going into your suffering. And we miss an opportunity. Not too long ago, I was reading something about Ajahn Liam, who's a great Thai monk. He was asked, what was important in his practice? You know, What was the most important thing? He's considered by some people to be fully enlightened. And he paused for a moment and I don't know what the interviewer was thinking he was going to say but what he said was it was encountering and meeting his fear Mm -hmm. that this was his worthy opponent this is a great meditation master he's not embarrassed by the fact that he was afraid he understands that in working with his fear that's part of what led to whatever opening he has had you know. So did you wrestle with your suffering today? Did you? You know, what did you learn about it? What was its flavor today? You know, was it flat out pain or was it impermanence or was it some loss? Or was it even that I was so blissed out yesterday when I arrived here at Land of Medicine Buddha and today I'm really depressed and cranky, you know, and so there's that or maybe it's grief for someone who has passed and if you didn't wrestle today I encourage you to wrestle tomorrow because there will be more tomorrow you know this is not over yet and you know retreat it's great you know it's the food I heard there were great door dukkha this afternoon doors opening and closing and slamming and the wind and you know, so maybe that's it, or maybe to roommate, or maybe it's what it's like to live without your phone and being able to text everyone you know, or, or it goes on and on and on, and all of these are great opportunities for practice. So when the Buddha went on to teach more about suffering, he included, I mean, more about liberation. I'm sorry. As he taught about liberation, he included even more about suffering. But this time, he included it as the first step on the path to liberation, rather than as the end of um, the cycle that goes around and around. And in the later teaching, suffering begins the process. It's the platform on which you we open to experiences of faith and insight, and experiences which... Um, teach us to meet that which comes to us with equanimity and with wisdom so it's sometimes called transformative dependent origination and I'll just read you the list again don't don't get too excited about exactly what, what is what um, that can come later so suffering creates the conditions for faith to arise many of you know that that's what led you to what conviction and faith you have And the faith creates the conditions for some delight, which creates the conditions for joy. Sounds good, huh? Creates the conditions for tranquility and serenity, which create the conditions for happiness. And then that supports concentration, which supports seeing things as they really are, which supports a kind of disenchantment because you're not hoping that they're going to be something different, which supports a kind of dispassion which is a support then for liberation. Isn't that great? And suffering is at the bottom Mm -hmm. and at the beginning. So it's very, very important. Years ago when I used to work as a therapist, every now and then I'd have somebody come in to work. Sometimes it was somebody, you know, their wife sent them or their husband sent them or their parents sent them. They didn't particularly want to be there. They weren't particularly unhappy. And they weren't really good clients because they weren't in a place of feeling their pain. Maybe they weren't even having any pain. I don't know. Um, so there wasn't any real reason to change, right? So not not so useful. The people who actually really began to work hard in the change were the people who really were feeling some of their own pain. You know, in 12-step work, we're taught... That you need to kind of hit a kind of bottom. Different bottoms for different people, but you still have to hit that before things will really change. And if you know, we know that there are dozens of spiritual leaders and teachers out there who really encountered suffering and who wrestled with it. Jesus and the Buddha and Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela, and St. Francis, and Desmond Tutu. The list is really long of people who struggled with what is this question of pain and suffering. My own journey, which depends on when you think of where it began, but one of the places that it began, that it really began to form as an adult, was when my first marriage began to fall apart. <laughs> and so, you know, that's a difficult time. Many of us have been through it. And it really demanded that. I did, of course, went. Of course, I did go to therapy, and uh, we went to therapy, and it really pushed me to begin to look at my own dark side, my own shadow and the people that i was working with a really interesting jungian group up in the city led me to a particular teaching which has stayed with me in all of the many many years since then um, which comes from the asclepian healing mysteries so one of the early greek healing mysteries and this teaching says god sends the wound god is the wound God is wounded and God heals the wound. Isn't that interesting? God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded and God heals the wound. Now, the God word, you can work with that any way you want to, but what that's really pointing at is how <clears throat> deeply sacred this place of woundedness is. There is dukkha in its many forms. You know, there is dukkha. It is inherent in human existence. And it is possible to wake up to its nature. And this work is the door to refuge. There's a poem from Dana Falls called Allow. She says, there is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. This is the important part. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness visits your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth in the choice to let go of your known way of being. I'm sorry. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. We actually can learn to be happy and we can learn to be contented with what is even while we're working for change. The Buddha wanted all beings to be happy. He wanted people to wake up so that we don't have to be caught in that endless repetitive cycle of suffering and so that we can follow those steps to liberation. And... Again, he never says that we do not have to suffer at all. He only says that we don't have to be caught. So the first step is to recognize your own suffering and to see where you are caught. And you know, that might be all you do here at this retreat. You might go home on Monday afternoon going, Wow, I had no idea I was so caught by this or that. And it might feel really like, what a terrible retreat I had. (laughs) But you know, it might be the most important retreat you ever sat. It might be. Because then you know what it is you have to work with. And then, so you know where you're caught and you bow to that opponent, like Ajahn Liam did. You know, your worthy opponent. Your fear, your restlessness the physical pain, your lust, your grief. And in that bowing, in that acknowledging, oh, this is a worthy opponent, that's where you begin. And it may take years to finish, years. But then, you know, that seems to be true of all heroic journeys. Rilke says, if we only arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust the difficult." then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. The Buddha tells us that waking up is possible. He says he wouldn't tell us about this if it were not possible to do it. I would not be sitting here talking to you if I did not think it was possible to do it, nor would Bob, nor Jason, nor Marcy. We've all at least had some experience that this is true. Our friend Sylvia Boorstein likes to talk about the third and one-half noble truth. So, that's very Sylvia. And so it's not that there's a complete ending of suffering, but we begin to know that some of the suffering ends. Probably all of you know that. I w- don't imagine you'd be sitting here if you didn't know that at some place. But there is some ending of suffering. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say to me, I don't know how I could get through this without the practice. You know, whatever the this is. You know, over and over and over again. Again. So here you are in these wonderful days, you know, resting in this amazing refuge in the Redwood Forest. And, you know, we hope that you will really look at your own situation and that you will wake up as you encounter your own suffering. Wake up as you soften into your experience and relax into it. And wake up as you own it. Because then, that's where the suffering becomes the door to refuge. And it will itself become a kind of refuge. It becomes the foundation and it becomes the first step towards awakening and liberation. So here's William Stafford to end. There is a thread you follow that goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread so stay just where you are and let's just breathe together for a minute So thank you very much for listening tonight. And you have just about 20 minutes for a short period of walking and then coming in for the last sitting and some practice of loving kindness to end the day with. Thank you for listening.